Good to be together. <clears throat> but 11 hours from now, an audience of 100 million people plus worldwide will be listening to one coach, key players from one team, their voices cracking with emotion, their eyes brimming with tears, pontificating on their big win. And no matter which of those teams wins the Super Bowl this afternoon, the definitive pronouncements of those being interviewed after the game will be identical. Almost as if they're from a script that was memorized as much as their playbook. The same lines used by a different team last year and the year before. Over the years, LaDonna, although still maintaining a childhood aversion to watching hockey, has actually come to enjoy watching NFL football with me. You can ask her about the origins of her hockey hate, but she has come to enjoy watching football primarily for two reasons, which I will tell you. Number one, because it's on Sunday afternoon, the only time of the week that her ADD husband will actually sit, chill, in a semi-reclined posture for more than 10 minutes. And she, in my presence, in a fully reclined posture, can enjoy a nice long nap. The associ- literally, the association in her mind has become so positive that she actually finds the distinct voices of NFL commentators to be soothing, like lullaby-like. Seriously. She's asleep in no time. The second reason she likes watching NFL football is because when she is awake after her nap, she enjoys taking on the role of commentator herself. Not on the game per se, but she com- comments on the commentators. She doesn't just comment after the fact. She loves trying to predict what the commentators and the players and coaches in their interviews with the sideline porters, reporters are going to say. And so today, if you watch the Super Bowl, you can put her to the test. Because I asked her this week what would be said in the post-game interviews today. Without thinking about it for more than two seconds, she said, well, that's easy. It'll be mostly variations on one theme. We won because we played together as a team. We had some adversity this year, but we didn't allow it to distract us from our goal. It brought us together. They keyed on so-and-so, tried to stop him, but one star. But we're not one man, we're a team, right? We are with each other. We are for each other. You think she'll be right? It's so predictable, isn't it? None of the players will say, you know, all year long in our locker room it was so dysfunctional, but I rose above it and pulled it off. Yeah, can't believe we got here because all year long the coach was so demanding, arrogant, bullheaded, domineering, didn't give me the time I deserved. Now versions of those lines will come out, not today, They will come out and they'll be blown up later on this spring when some of those very same players will demand to be traded and the media needs a juicy story to keep football on sports fans' minds, right? Why why do those players, those coaches, those commentators say that same line all the time? Because they're true. It's like, duh. We're not getting something now, new, They're saying something that we all know deep down is the key factor to winning, in doing, in being anything. They're the key to any enterprise succeeding. And we love seeing it this very week as potential candidates for the opposition party in the country to the south of us 
explore their chances for becoming the leader of their party. What is it they're doing as they explore? They're trying to assess how many people will be with them and their goal is to get a commitment from people to be for them when the line is drawn. In another country, in the continent to the south of us, a country that is dear to the heart of some of us here, the world is weighing in, or in some cases strategically avoiding weighing in, on a major struggle between the currently elected leader, in quotes, and a leader who claims to have the moral authority of the people because he says the majority of people are with him, for him. What's the big challenge in our marriages? What is it in our minds we are testing all of the time? Is he really with me in a for me kind of way? Is she for me in a with me kind of way? During the first four months of this year, we're, we're teaching our way through what is probably the first account recorded of Jesus' life and teaching and work, the Gospel of Mark. And I invite you to turn there to chapter 3 today. The question of the book. <clears throat> no, somewhere is a slide that should talk about downloading a Bible app. So download your Bible app if you can. The question of the book was Jesus makes the question of utmost importance, people of all ages, is, who was this guy? Who is this guy? Jesus. What really was he trying to do? And what does that mean for me? There's no question that Jesus claimed to be the watershed figure in human history with whom all people from all times will have to come to terms. He comes onto this scene de declaring what? Chapter 1, verse 14. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom. The rule of God over all of creation is with you. Because, as Matthew says, Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. With us in an authoritative kind of way, not to squelch me, but to be for me in every way. The question we come to today and, and, and the matter that Jesus makes, the mark of being a follower of him, is simply this. The sentence is a little bit convoluted, but I think you'll get it, and we're going to process it for our teaching today. Am I responding to the only one who has proven to be with me in a for me kind of way? Am I responding to him by being with him and for him in the same kind of way? That's the question of being a disciple, a follower of Jesus he comes onto the scene declaring the good news, the gospel that in him, the kingdom, the rulership of God over his creation, bringing shalom and peace and wholeness for all, is coming. And his teaching is about this good news. His miracles are proofs that he is this good news, that he has authority over every, every single realm that stands against us. And that means over us. And as he comes in this way, it's not long, as we saw last week, that, that these two trajectories develop, the crowds flocking to him. And then, as we begun, begin to see last week, the religious establishment being opposed to him. Why? Because both of these groups see the same thing. 
Both of these groups see in Jesus authority. One group sees in him the authority they're looking for. The other group sees that in his authority, they will lose their own authority. The grip they have over people. And so, chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees go out and begin to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. And as this tension heightens, what does Jesus do? Well, he's not up for the big show, the big showdown yet. And so, verse 7, where our passage today begins, Jesus withdraws with his disciples to the lake. But although he can, he can get away from the leaders plotting against him, he can't escape the crowds who are becoming infatuated with him. And he leaves with his disciples and a large crowd from Galilee follow him. And Jesus decides that now is the time, not for the big showdown, but for an initial culling, line-drawing showdown, which is our teaching passage for today. The heart of the rest of this chapter, chapter 3, verse 7 to verses 35, is Jesus' commissioning of this small group, the 12, a group he's already begun to form and formally calls them to be with him. And in that call defines the essence of what it means to be with Jesus. And then Jesus has these interactions with several other groups who come to him, crowds, demons, Pharisees, his family who come to him, but who, as we see, are not fully with him. So we're going to read this whole section at once. And and as we read it, you can follow along your Bible, I hope. Think about these questions. Number one, what does it mean to be with Jesus? Like Jesus is with me. What are some possible inadequate withness measures that, that some of these groups are demonstrating? And the big question is, how do with and for relate to each other? That's a little more difficult one, but we're going to see it. Think about how these five groups that are around Jesus, demons, religious authorities, crowds, his family, and the twelve, how are they processing their own with and for Jesus' peace? So let's read Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Edumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed so many, or he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! But he gave them strict orders. Not to tell who he was. Jesus went up on a mountainside and he called to him those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed 12, designated them apostles. That they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach, to have authority, to drive out demons. Those are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the names Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered. 
so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of them, for they said, he's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Beelzebub. When the prince of demons, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house can't stand. And so if Satan opposes himself, he's divided. He cannot stand. His end has come. If Satan opposes himself, or in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and my mother. Let's pray. Lord, as we process these words of Jesus for us, I I pray that the power of with and for is something that we will grasp and we leave living in as followers of Jesus. In his powerful name we pray. Amen. Okay. Let's put this together for us. From this passage, we're going to see two things. Number one, a, a core withness truth, which is, which is the central more Jesus message in this passage. And second, we're going to, we're going to see four measures, two, one inadequate measure that we tend to use because we don't understand the core principle, and then three clear measures that Jesus points to in this passage. So, the core witness truth in this section that's at the heart of the passage is, is in the calling of Jesus' disciples. But we have, to, we have to start with how this whole scene develops, how in Mark's account he sets up this calling of the disciples. We need to see them in light of this group of people who who seem to be with Jesus, the crowd. Verse 7, the crowds are are following him. Large crowds are following him. It's not only a large crowd, it's growing. Many more are coming to him from, names all these places. And the point in Mark's passage is two things. Jesus is becoming more popular than John the Baptist. If you look back to chapter 1, you'll see that this is a broader region than from John the Baptist. And number two, if you know the whole biblical story and and look at maps, you'll realize that what Jesus is saying here, or Mark is saying, is that, oh my goodness, people are coming to him from the entire boundary that was the biggest boundary that the people of Israel ever had. It's happening Verse 9, they're doing more than following him. They're doing what crowds do. They're crowding him. In verse 10, it says they are literally, they are pushing forward 
to touch him. It's literally, it says they're falling upon him. It's important to understand that the literal translation is they're falling upon him to touch him. They are no longer waiting for Jesus to touch them. They were pushing, crossing, and forcing their way onto him to touch them. This is becoming an unmanageable crowd crush. No wonder we have these situations in the gospel where Jesus' disciples think it's their job to be Jesus' security guards, his bodyguards. And then Mark inserts this interesting piece about the demons. Now, it does happen here, but if you notice, he says it continually happens. It's not when the evil spirit saw, it says whenever. But Mark sees it's a fitting time right here to insert this comment about the demons. It's there for a reason. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Two really quick things we need to see here. Number one, we need to see why Mark puts it in here, this whenever a statement, why it fits in here best and not somewhere else. It's not so apparent in a lot of our English translation, but Mark is comparing the way the crowds respond to Jesus and the way demons respond to Jesus. What do the crowds do? They, they fall upon Jesus. They're in a frenzy. They're, they're all, all gaga over him. They are, they are swept into it. And this is a clip that would make the evening news, right? The crowd crush. They're clutching and grabbing and climbing all over each other. But why are they there? They're there simply for what they think they need to get from Jesus. They want him to touch them and heal them. And how do the demons respond? The crowd falls upon Jesus. The demons fall before Jesus. That's a, that's a word that describes paying homage to a superior. They're not truly worshiping. But the demons who realize that there is an authority in the universe. And they know they're in a big battle for the control of the world. They see in Jesus the one who is going to crush them and they're scared to death you see the demons here are a bit of a foil in this story they get it better than the crowd who see who, who jesus who see jesus as someone who can make them feel better about themselves and life they get it better than religious authorities who still think they can fight his authority and be authorities and the question this passage leaves us, because if you're trying to think through how, the, how these 12 respond to Jesus, we don't know. It's the only group. The group that Jesus calls is the only group that nothing is said about how they respond to Jesus. It's because that's the question we're supposed to be asking ourselves. The second thing we need to see here is Jesus' interesting response to the demons. He tells them to be quiet. Well, he doesn't just tell them to be quiet. He shuts them up. His authoritative word shuts them up. They can't speak. Three times in the Gospel of Mark, the demons are told to be quiet. Four times after a miracle, people are told to be quiet. Two times, Jesus' disciples are told to be quiet. And two times, one of them here, when his popularity is starting to peak, Jesus pulls away from crowds to avoid being detected for who he is. The question is why? If they're telling the truth, these demons are telling the truth, why not capitalize it on it? Go with it. Ride the wave. We're not going to answer that why question now. Jesus alludes to the answer later on in the passage, as we're going to see. So there's this unmanageable crowd crush. Demons are beaking in his face about who he is. And what does Jesus do? 
Time out. He calls a very strategic time out for his formal commissioning of his team, the heart of the whole chapter. Jesus went up on a mountainside, verse 13. He called to him those he wanted. And they came to him. And he appointed 12 of them, designated them apostles. Jesus doesn't capitalize on the crowd crush. He separates himself from it, and he goes up to the mountainside. Now, if we're really versant in in the big story, you'll see here that even before Mark fleshes out what Jesus is doing here, he's hinting at something. What Jesus is doing is a flashback to God pulling Moses, Exodus 19, up the mountain to give Moses marching orders for his new program. That's what Jesus is doing with the disciples. Like God with Moses, he doesn't ask for volunteers. He chooses several people that he wants and he assigns them. He's forming his team to lead God's people into a new stage of the big story. And he calls them apostles. At this time, this is not an office. Apostles simply means sent ones. That's important to understand because of what he says about them. He appointed 12, designating them as sent ones that he might be with that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have his authority to drive out demons. Now, here's a key question. <clears throat> How do you hear what Jesus is saying in that line that he might that he might be with them, that they might be with him and that he might send them out? How do you read that line? Do you, it's easy to read that line and that, think that Jesus is choosing them for two things. Number one, to be with him. Spend time hanging out with him. Learning from him. And then, when they're ready to eventually send them out on his behalf. Folks, that's so far from what's happening here with Jesus and his core group. And that is not what Jesus is saying. These are not two separate things, with and for. The second phrase is clarifying what it really means for us to be with Jesus. To be with Jesus is to be for Jesus, on mission with Jesus in his world. As Summer said earlier, this is, this is missions month. And, and every single Sunday this month, actually until March 3, we're going to have some windows of, of mission that we're participating in this world on behalf of Jesus. Um, only twice. Next Sunday, John Wicker, who we've, uh, has been one of our global, global partners for many years, is going to be here teaching. Uh, and then on March 3rd, is going to be a really special guest that is new to us, but uh, is, is really part of one of our partners in uh, global mission in this world. We're gonna, he's going to be here. But the rest of the time, we're going to keep teaching through this Gospel of Mark and just have windows each week on, on, on mission. Mark sees this whole scene as a big object lesson by Jesus to these core disciples as to what it really means to be with Jesus. Some of us here are saying, yeah, you know, I'd I'd like to do something for Jesus, but but I'm not quite ready yet. We don't know quite for sure what it's going to take to be ready, but the pastor's job is he's supposed to tell me what that is. He's supposed to teach me and, and develop me and, and grow me to the point that I can be for Jesus in my world. No, 
All we have to do is to see that when Jesus touches us and calls us and we see and submit to who he is, we get to take Jesus with us into our world and to be for him in our world. I, I love taking my wife with me to stuff because, well, to take her with me actually makes me look like I, I could be somebody. <laughs> but folks, we get to take Jesus with us everywhere. And the question is, are we allowing his presence to shape our identity, our attitudes there, where we go, our purposes, where we go? The most significant witness we can experience is working together for Jesus in our world. And that's, that's why one of the things we're trying to emphasize is that all of our group life together, if we're followers of Jesus together, all of our group life together needs to have a missionality component to it. No, we don't just want to withdraw and be together with Jesus, just the three of us. Together, we need to be with Jesus somehow in our world for Jesus. And I want to tell you on Jesus' authority that you are more ready than you think. We're going to see why a little later. So that's the big more truth from this passage. It's not about getting more of Jesus. We already have all of Jesus. He gave us everything. We can't have more of Jesus. When he comes in, he doesn't just stick one foot in the door. He comes in. Now, we can always experience more of Jesus by allowing him to have more of us, all of us. And a key measure of that is, am I giving myself to be sent by him, for him, into my world? So out of that core truth, let's, let's look at, at four key measures really quickly. Uh, actually, one we're going to take a little bit more time fleshing out because it's, it's a really key one. But uh, first of all, to, to just summarize what we said to this point, one, one inadequate measure that we often use because we don't understand this core with and for principle. One inadequate measure, and it comes from the crowd. It's what separates a, a true follower from Jesus from the crowd. And it's even more prevalent in our feelings-oriented world today. How does the crowd measure withness? For them, it's about experience, about feelings. How much am I getting from Jesus in my experience right now? In life, at church, in my marriage? What does he seem to be doing for me? What am I getting from him now? I'm just not feeling it right now. The de crowd determines withness by whether they're feeling it in the moment. Have you lost some of the withness feeling with Jesus? Maybe the way you need to process that is to ask yourself, am I using the right measure? Perhaps I've made it too much about my experience, my feelings experience. A huge part of growing up into Jesus is realizing that one of the marks of maturing even early maturities that you can't, you can't separate with and for. We can't use an excuse, you know, I'm not just feeling it right now. I need more time with Jesus. Many times going deeper with Jesus means to give myself to doing it, trusting his withness even though I don't feel his withness. Just like parenting, just like marriage, just like studying for school, just like me studying for teaching, just like work, just like all of life. You do it whether you're feeling it or not. And when we start doing it with trust in him, at some point we begin to feel it in a whole new kind of way. 
You see how this for and with are supposed to work together? We see that in how Matthew wraps up his gospel with this very same key insight we see in Mark. The last line in Matthew's gospel is that great withness promise of Jesus. Look at how with and for come together, just like Jesus' original call in Mark 3. Mark chapter 28, verse 18. Go before me in this world. I'm sending you out, making disciples. And surely, as you go for me, you will know my withness right to the end of the age. Is that a generic promise? Oh, Jesus is always with me? Well, it's true. But in what context is that promise made? In the context of his promise to all those who take on his commission to be sent by him under his authority to everyone we encounter to join us in following Jesus. You see, it's when you press deeper into Jesus' call to be for him in your world and, and, and begin to see some little things happening, Jesus working through you, even when you're not feeling it, that you begin to experience witness in a more powerful way. And that's a witness that can keep you going. So let's move on to the positive measures. If the kind of witness Jesus wants is a foreness witness, in light of his all-in witness with us, let's look at three foreness measures that Jesus gives in, in, in our passage. Verse 20, Jesus comes down from the mountain. Once again, he encounters a crowd and enters a confrontation with demons. Okay, we're back to the crowd and the demons from the early part of the passage. Seems to me that these Pharisees, I won't read it, we don't have time, but look at verses 20 to 22. It seems to me that these Pharisees observed Jesus shutting the demons' mouths with this word. And the most logical thing for them to believe is that, wow, Jesus is the one who has power over them. There's only one who could have power over demons, just like Mark says early in the gospel. There's only one who can forgive sins, God alone. That's the most logical choice for them to, way for them to interpret this scene. But, Logically, that would also mean that Jesus would have authority over them, and that they cannot admit. And so, what do they do? They say, hmm, demons don't say anything. They listen to him. He's in cahoots with them. He didn't authoritatively shut their mouths. They just realized that it wasn't time to speak up. They might blow the whole thing. Do you see the irony here? The very ones who accuse Jesus of being in league with, league with Satan are the ones who have hardened their hearts and closed their minds to seeing that they are in league with Satan if they do not submit to Jesus' authority. And Jesus comes back to them and says, Huh? Listen to yourselves. What you're saying does not even make sense. Verse 23 he called them on it, and he, he spoke to them in a parable. How can Satan drive out Satan? It's just illogical. And he fleshes that out. And so Jesus first busts them for what they know is illogical, and then he says, Now, let me tell you what's really going on here, which you should see. Verse 26. And 27. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. 
Then he can plunder his house. I tell you the truth. No, let's, let's stop right there for a bit. What Jesus is saying is that if I shut those demons down, what that means is I have come into Satan's house. And I have shut him down. I will take down the strong man that is against you, against everyone who is made as God's image, and I will tie up that strong man. You just watch me. What he's talking about here is what Jesus says his mission in the world really is. It's to enter the world that humanity in the garden, Genesis 3.15, gave up to the evil one, and God left us in charge And we gave up our charge by getting sucked into the lies of the evil one. And that, says Jesus, is what these Pharisees are getting sucked in by. And that's how we need to understand what Jesus says next in in verse 28. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin or a sin with eternal consequences. That statement has caused a lot of fear in the hearts of the wrong people. When we don't have the feeling we first had with Jesus and begin to wonder about our own commitment to Jesus, sometimes, if we are people who are prone to self-doubt, sometimes we will say, you know, I know Jesus said something about a sin that's not forgivable. How do I know if I've committed it? Well, there are two answers to that. Number one, if you're worried about it, afraid you've committed it, it's a sure sign you haven't. Why? Because number two, Jesus gives the answer to that question, what it is. Committing, there's only one sin that's unpardonable. The sin that bars you from an eternal relationship with Jesus is not ever recognizing that Jesus is the Son of God who has authority over everything, everyone, everything against me. That, as he says in chapter one, the Holy Spirit has become one with him, part of God. Jesus is not talking about some indefinable offense against God. He's talking about a judgment about Jesus that he is motivated by evil and not good. That he's empowered by the evil one and not God the Son. Do you know how the basic form of that lie works today? Well, God wouldn't send anyone to hell. He forgives simply because he's a God of love. No, no. It's not about God sending anyone to hell. It's that I have a choice to make. Who will I submit the leadership of my life to? Will I submit, it, submit to the one who has proven he's for me, with me? If not, that's a life-determining choice. And now we're ready to see why Jesus told the demons to be silent, to told, that he told his disciples to be silent at times, and he told those who experienced his miracles to be silent. It becomes clear in the, the last time Jesus tells anyone to be silent in the Gospels is in chapter 9. Uh, once again, the disciples are on a mountain with Jesus in that capstone experience we call transfiguration. It's a powerful experience. And when it's done, Jesus said to them, don't tell anyone what you just saw Until after the Son of Man is risen from the dead. At that time, they're saying, what? Risen from the dead? What are you talking about? That means you've got to die. That's not happening. But what Jesus is saying in all of these silence things is that you can't interpret 
what I'm, what I, what I'm about just by all of those good things that you're experiencing from me. It's only after I've died, risen from the dead, and the lights will turn on in your hearts about who I really am and how I really came to be for you, ultimately, to die and rise again, to, to make you mine. That's when you'll get the big picture and you can begin declaring and being for me in this world. And here in Mark 3, we have this dramatic picture of what it is that as we celebrate in communion, what it is that Jesus came to do for us. In his death, Jesus entered the heart of the battle of the ages and not only took on the shoulders, on his shoulders, the weight of my sin, he took on personally the evil one to whom humans gave up the world. And in doing that, in rising from the dead, remember as Paul says in the book of Romans, Death came upon humanity because humanity sinned in stepping out from the good and life-giving leadership of God for them. Jesus entered that strong man's house in his death. And as a result of that became the strong man for me so that I no longer have to pump myself up with these self-empowering lies. What is the great fornest truth that we need to live? The measure? Am I living as if I believe that in Jesus' death and resurrection, the strong man is bound. John, who's in that circle, records hearing Jesus say, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you can have trouble, but in that trouble take courage. I have overcome the world. Oh yeah, you're in a battle. But the battle you're in is not a losing battle, it's a winning battle. And his first letter to people who are struggling in that battle, John says, you're from God, little children. You've conquered the spirits who are trying to tell you it's not real, it's not worth it, you can't do it. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So as we celebrate communion today, will you ask God to help you to declare to your heart that in whatever it is you're facing, whatever it is you're afraid of, whatever it is you're, you're just resisting entering, then what you think of as being against you is bound. And Jesus is empowering you to not just be with him, but to be for him in this world. Just review the last, three, the last two measures quickly. You can talk about them in your group life. The second fornness measure is in this passage about family, this weird passage about Jesus' family trying to get him away from what he's doing and, and be with them. And the question is, the, the one question is, how is Jesus calling me to believe and live that his family is first family? You see, in our world, family has become idle. Anything we do in the name of family, we can, no. The point is, let's have our families be Jesus' family together with him and for him in our world. Some of us have made family an idol in one way of making it more important than Jesus' family. Some of us have made family an idol in the sense that we don't think we can ever have that bourgeois dream of family. But Jesus is saying to us today, look, that's not family, this is family. You are part of me and my family. 
Will you hear that as we celebrate communion today? And the third fourness measure is simply doing the will of God. Whoever does the will of God is my family. It's not talking here about some special plan God has for you. It's talking about what he says in Matthew chapter 6. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will fall into place. And the question is, am I abandoning myself to do God's will or do I have, to, do I have a when attached to it? I'll do it when I see him doing this for me. The question is, how am I investing my resources, my time, my money, and skill sets to be for Jesus and not for me? And one of our resources for some of us is seeing how our brokenness, some of which we caused ourselves, can see that Jesus makes us whole in him. We do not have to defend what we did or said. We don't have to do somehow do the I'm okay, you're okay thing. We can name it and recognizing the brokenness of it and realize that even in, that in Jesus, even this strong man is bound, has been defeated, and we can begin to leverage that brokenness to show others how Jesus can be even for them. Worship team. Would you come forward in the West Court worship team? Come forward. You've already celebrated communion, but servers of communion here, would you come forward? As we celebrate this time together, let's go back to that main question. Would you, would you just ask yourself, am I respond, how am I responding to the one who has proven himself to be totally with me in a for-me kind of way, with all he is and has. Ask yourself, how this week can I demonstrate that I am with him in a for-him kind of way, with everything I have, everything I am in the world that he is sending me into this week? Listen to how Paul describes in the book of Colossians this business of the strong man being bound and it has to do with this. You were dead because of your sins, because of your sinful nature, your flesh was not yet removed, cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to his cross. In this way, listen to what he says, in this way he disarmed all rulers and authorities in the spiritual realm that are against you. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. His body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. And in that, every strong man against you is bound. You can know his withness, his forness, and you can be for and with him in your world. His body was broken. Let's thank God for it and worship him. Almighty God, we thank you. We appreciate you for glorifying yourself. 
in allowing your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to lay down his life so that we can be reconciled back to you. We pray that you continue to protect us from the evil one. Mm. And we thank you that you continue to give us the strength to be with you and for you in the same kind of way that you be for us. We know there are times in this difficult world that we face obstacles. But let us continue to be reassured that you are with us and that you are greater than all the issues that we face. We pray.